0: As more rural hospitals close, more babies are being born in the ER and sometimes on the side of the road.
1: Now they're traveling, they go into labor. Well, they pull over and you can deliver, but now we're seeing more and more of that.
0: Maternity care deserts in central Illinois next on WGLT's Sound Ideas. Good afternoon. I'm John Norton also on today's show our next history makers profile you'll hear from retired professors Mary and Hank Campbell plus you'll hear about a campaign called 1000 black girls books from one of the students who won Bloomington's black history essay contest
2: Marley Dye has inspired me to show me that you can make a change when you notice there's a problem
0: stories follow a Bloomington Normal News update, which is just ahead. This is WGLT Sound Ideas on 891 FM and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network.
3: Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. Here, my story continues with local patient
0: Bill McKay. We have a beautiful pipe organ. With hearing aids, all of a sudden this pipe organ comes alive. It's like it's a beautiful, rich sound that I don't know that, that I could have appreciated prior to having hearing aids. Bill's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. From the campus of Illinois State University in Normal, this is WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. Good afternoon, I'm John Norton. More than 200 rural hospitals across the country have shut their doors over the past decade. And in the ones that have stayed open, maternity wards are becoming a rarity. WGLT's Lindsey Jones takes a look at the problems facing hospitals here in central Illinois.
4: Don't be pushed. Emergency?
5: About a month after Lincoln Memorial Hospital shut down its labor and delivery unit, Logan County dispatchers took this call.
4: Hello? Uh, we are on our way to Springfield, uh, where we called. We're supposed to call you guys. We're, we believe we're having a baby. You're having a baby. Okay, where are you at? Uh, we're in Elkhart.
5: But this delivery wasn't happening at home or even in town.
4: I just got off the interstate.
5: This baby came on an exit ramp on I-55, Less than two minutes after the 911 call was placed.
4: Oh my God! <laughs> hey, we, we had a baby. <laughs> You've already delivered the baby. baby. Hello? Hello? Hello. Are you okay? She just had a baby. She had the baby. Okay. Is the baby breathing? Baby breathing. <laughs> Eyes are okay. open.
5: According to the rest of that call, mother and baby did as well as they could for birthing near an interstate until first responders arrived minutes later.
4: Is it a boy or a girl? Girl. Girl, congratulations. Thank you. I should have a police officer pulling up right now. Yeah, yeah, I just saw saw, it. All right, good. He'll be able to help you out now, okay? Congratulations.
5: Good luck. thank you very much. Thank you. Having a baby on the side of the road is no one's idea of an ideal birth. At the same time, as OB units at small rural hospitals close their doors, The scenario is not unheard of.
1: You know, they're traveling, they go into labor. Well, they pull over and you can deliver. But now we're seeing more and more of that.
5: That's Pat Scow, the executive director of Illinois Critical Access Hospital Network, a nonprofit that connects 57 small rural hospitals across the state. In her 20 years with the Rural Health Organization, Scow says a disturbing pattern has developed.
1: OBUs units started to close. about 10, 15 years ago. And I think we just thought it would just get better. And, you know, then another hospital closes and another hospital closes, and then the the gaps get bigger and bigger and bigger.
5: In that context, Lincoln Memorial Hospital shutting down its OB unit last December was far from unprecedented.
1: And here's an example. When I started doing the critical access program in 1999, of the 52 critical access hospitals, probably 28 of them, We're providing OB services. Now there's four.
5: There's a host of issues facing rural hospitals in general. Staffing is one of them. Rising costs is another. Scow says the one challenge that's consistent with all of these hospitals that had or still have OB units is Medicaid reimbursement rates. You
1: know, the funding is really, you know, the biggest issue. It's not a Medicare funding issue, but it's a Medicaid funding issue.
5: The National Center for Health Statistics' most recent data shows that over 40% of births in the U.S. are financed by Medicaid. That's the public health insurance program for adults and children with limited income and resources. Scow says Medicare, the other public program that covers adults 65 and older, reimburses these small hospitals cost-plus for their patients. That means the care provided to someone on Medicare is paid for in full by the federal program, with 1% of the cost on top added. Medicaid, however, doesn't work like that.
1: Medicare is a national program and Medicaid is a state program. So the state of Illinois with Medicaid recognizes that they're critical access hospitals, but they don't pay more because they're an OB patient. And they don't pay any more if they have a department of OB services.
5: And the majority of patients utilizing OB units at these rural hospitals are on Medicaid. The other services being provided are often covered by Medicare as rural populations age. Megan Hyam is an administrator at a rural health clinic in Litchfield, south of Springfield.
4: One of the only offices that do, does prenatal care between St. Louis and Springfield.
5: The clinic covers about five counties and has about 20,000 active patients. Higham says the patient base is
4: very heavy on Medicaid and Medicare.
5: The rural clinic that HI-AM is based at is an independent practice, but its obstetrical physicians do rounds and deliver babies at the nearby St. Francis Hospital. They, too, have watched hospitals shut the doors of their OB units across the state, and they worried.
4: Dr. Johnson is our most senior partner in our practice, um, but he has a passion for this and kind of was getting nervous that all of these OB units were not getting the financial support they needed throughout the state and were closing, you know, not necessarily a fault of their own.
5: Haim says they're lucky. The not-for-profit healthcare organization that operates St. Francis, called Hospital Systems Healthcare System, recognizes the critical role that hospital plays for patients in the surrounding areas.
4: HSHS is committed to kind of subsidizing the OB department at St. Francis here at Lynchfield. Even though there are lack of funds, lack of resources, you know, Expenses keep going up. So where a lot of places, they don't have the support of a larger system. So they're forced to close, essentially. You know, they cannot make it work.
5: Hiem says if that larger healthcare organization wasn't there or wasn't willing to take the shortfall that comes with having a rural OB unit.
4: It's hard to speculate, but the reimbursement is not there to fund. Like if, if we had our just like a birthing center, or our own independent
5: hospital. There's also the issue of the number of births happening at these hospitals. They've been on the decline for some time. That's partly because of rural population loss and aging trends, but there are other factors, too. Either way, Hyam says if the hospital sister's healthcare system wasn't essentially subsidizing the OB unit at St. Francis.
4: For us in particular, I don't think it would be sustainable without a large um, brand like H.S.H.S.
5: Haim says they see 200 to 300 births a year. That's about one-tenth the number of births at OSF St. Francis in Peoria. It's also far lower than the number of births at both OSF St. Joseph in Bloomington and Carl Broman in Normal last year. So add a low number of babies being born to a low-paying reimbursement program for hospital births, and you've got the major problem facing these critical access hospitals. Here's Pat Skow of the Illinois Critical Access Care Network.
1: Many of these small rural hospitals had to close their doors for OB services because they were losing a million to a million and a half a year.
5: Back in Logan County at Lincoln Memorial Hospital, the CEO said in that November press release announcing the closure, births there had dropped down to about two per week, while demand for other services at the hospital had increased. As a critical access hospital, Lincoln Memorial has 25 beds, When it did offer labor and delivery services, just three of those beds were for maternity care. Now, as is the case in many other rural hospitals, there are none. Healthcare professionals like Pat Scow say that's directly leading to more births at rural emergency departments. And like we heard at the beginning, babies born on the road, on the way to a hospital that could be hours away.
1: The hospitals are telling me that they're seeing more and more babies being delivered in the emergency room. Because, you know, if you got to drive an hour, an hour and a half away, you know, depends on how fast the baby's going to come.
5: There's no quick fix to this problem, since it's one that has a lot to do with Medicaid, with funding, and with the complexities of the healthcare care system in the U.S. in general. Here's Megan Hyam of Litchfield Family Practice Center again.
4: Politics is hard and, you know, convoluted, and I don't think it's something that, you know, anyone wants to ignore, put on the back burner. It's just that the funds aren't there and it, things take time to kind of, you know, like shift directions and move money into certain areas.
5: Pat Scow with the Illinois Critical Access Hospital Network says it's going to take creative thinking to come up with the solutions.
1: Do we start looking at how do we work it out so there's some kind of adjacent OB center or something like that, you know, or or do we reimburse hospitals for having OR available. They're Medicaid and they have OB services. I don't know. We have to rethink the formula.
5: In Livingston County, north of McLean County, Catholic Hospital System OSF announced yesterday it would begin sending OB patients to OSF St. Joseph in Bloomington to deliver, instead of at its Pontiac-based St. James Hospital. The organization said healthcare officials are evaluating just what services it will continue to offer births at that hospital have fallen from over 500 a year down to 10 to 15 a month, according to OSF. I'm Lindsey Jones.
0: Tomorrow on Sound Ideas, hear more about the maternity care deserts in central Illinois. Plus, Lindsay Jones talks to the last OB in Logan County. Stories and conversations around Bloomington Normal in McLean County. This is WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. I'm John Norton. Beginning last week, WGLT's Lauren Warnicke began profiling this year's McLean County history makers. The series continues with retired Illinois State University professors, Mary and Hank Campbell.
6: Hank and Mary Campbell met as co-eds at Ohio University and moved together to Bowling Green, Ohio. Hank studied industrial technology, Mary, social work. The couple lived in Toledo for a brief time, then in Pittsburgh for six years. They then went back to Ohio for Hank's Ph.D. and Mary's master's degree at Ohio State University. A job offer at Illinois State University for Hank brought the couple to Bloomington Normal in 1976. They'd both wind up spending their careers at ISU, but at the time, Mary gave it two years. I wasn't very excited about leaving
7: the East and coming to the Midwest, but it's turned out to be a wonderful place to live.
3: A classmate of mine at Bowling Green was a professor here, and he he was encouraging to come here. I also thought, what? Well, it's so flat out here. Yeah. <laughs> but we had been in Bowling Green, and that, that was just was as really flat. flat. But then, uh, little by little... Uh, a very nice career broke out and it just went on and on from there
6: does it still seem flat I mean oh it's, it's amazingly
3: oh,
7: flat <laughs> um, and it's very treeless that's another uh-huh. thing that is different than like Pennsylvania for example but the people are good and yeah. we like it here and we've we've both had really... Rewarding careers.
6: There's such a nice juxtaposition between your academic careers and your service uh, to the community and to and to Habitat for Humanity. And mm-hmm. so, how did you manage to make all of that happen while you were both in these rigorous academic careers?
7: Both of our fields actually lend itself to service, mm-hmm. and we did many service activities with our students. So I would have, you know, we we took uh, we took students year after year to a disaster area. And, um, and and then Hank did took his students to the habitat projects at times, and so I think the fields that we happen to have, that was our careers, um, lent itself to involving others.
3: We didn't know any differently. We just thought that's part of the profession, and yeah. we just moved to different opportunities.
6: But you know, it is it is not hard in academia to move into a. a- uh, complacency where you kind of get stuck in the classroom, right? So well, I don't... Well, that's
3: not a bad place to be stuck.
7: Yeah, but um, the real world has to be a part of it. Uh, you know, books are one thing, but it's like when you take students to work in an inner city and they actually get to see what urban city life is like. I took a group up to um, uh, it used to be called Altgeld Gardens, and they were doing a, a survey for the community center on the rates of asthma among the children. That experience was transformative for all of us. I had never walked in Altgeld Gardens, and when they get to see what the lives of other people are like, it changes how they see what they read in a textbook.
3: So you had things anywhere from the prisons to the...
7: Yeah, yeah.
3: Different experience there and experiences taking students to Appalachia and in rural communities. Right. And that was part of the curriculum.
7: Most of the students that I had at the time, I assume it's probably similar, they were from the suburbs of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And they hadn't had any life experience beyond that. So um, I wrote a course, um, Social Work in Rural Communities, and the whole course was about that. But they had to give up spring break and go to work in Appalachia in Mm -hmm. the mountain ranges and uh, work with uh, some groups down there. So... It was very cool. I, you know, it was it was wonderful.
6: Mm-hmm. You've been nominated for this award together as a married couple. So, you know, yeah. make the case for your partner's eligibility yeah. for their share of the award. Lauren, that's dangerous territory for me to <laughs> get into. Well, he's over 70.
7: <laughs> that's that's one of the qualifications. <laughs> and And he's, you know... As much as I've done it with social work, he's done it with industrial technology and Habitat for Humanity. He loves that. I'd be like, you do not have to go this morning. It's freezing, and it's 7 a.m. And he'd be like, no, no, I'm going. And they would go and work. He and several other faculty were, you know, dedicating. And students. And And the students would show up. I think consistently across time, whether it was while you were teaching or, um, or since you've retired, you've done tons of community service. This is
6: Sound Ideas. I'm Lauren Warnicke. Starting in the early 1990s, Hank Campbell helped direct a joint Habitat for Humanities venture between Illinois State University, Illinois Wesleyan University, and occasionally with Heartland Community College students. It became part of his curriculum at Illinois State in a class on construction management. Students from the three universities built 27 Habitat houses in 26 consecutive years.
3: It's uh, the most successful student chapter that we know of Mm -hmm. across the country. And that's only because we've got good people backing us up within the organization of Habitat and maybe a construction manager or something, making sure that the lots are there and the materials show up. And then, hey, go at it. Uh, You're the project directors and you put things together And the most rewarding time certainly are the house blessings with the families because you do build with a family, not
6: Mm -hmm, for a family. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's just a no-brainer that the two of you are (laughs) involved in that together because it is the marriage of both of your skills and passions.
7: With retirement, I was able to start two nonprofits. But when you start those, you start them with abandoned buildings that are either condemned or should have been. And so then that part of the other half of the family here um, gets roped in and and brings in all the other people that we've already been involved with who are willing to come out and knock down walls and and you know hang dry w- whatever. And so it, it, it has continued beyond beyond the college years um, mm-hmm. to, to create those yeah. things.
3: And to draw the plans for some of those so that you can take them to the city for yeah. approval yeah and get I, know, approval I have no I don't have the skills mm-hmm.
6: but you could be on a beach somewhere
7: I wouldn't be a very pleasant person to be around well and, and it'd be very very difficult to build a
3: community that already surrounds us yeah yeah I mean right we, we've had since we came here in the 70s there was a uh, the Newman Center mm-hmm. and and the vitality of that with young people and and Good thought and uh, fun times, and be able to do projects with them. I think that that really anchored us mm-hmm. value-wise and mm-hmm. what we could do to contribute to the community and and uh, help build
6: community. I know that the two of you are guided by your faith practice, and um, is is that is that the thing that drives you, or what is the the nexus of your various aspects of service.
7: In my just personal belief, I think we're on this earth to make a difference, and um, I think that, I think we have to be accountable for each other.
3: Speaking out is not enough. I think you have to put some action behind it, because people <laughs> generally identify with action more than just words.
7: But what drives you to do that? I, grew, I just want to serve. I grew I up in a to... family where that was strong, that was strong value. But you did not do it. I, th- I think she was wondering, you know, what kind of inspires you.
3: I don't know. I just, uh, I, I didn't want to be perceived as not being successful, and so that was a kind of an internal drive that came from part of my childhood and mm-hmm. part of my family bringing there. You, you hear messages and so forth that well, you, you really can't do this and you may not be able to do that or, or will not be able to do that. And my gosh, you can.
0: The 2023 History Makers Gala takes place on Wednesday, June 21st in the Brown Ballroom at Illinois State University. Details are available at mchistory.org. Look for all of WGLT's History Makers profiles on wglt.org. Thanks for listening. This is 891 WGLT. I'm John Norton, and this is Sound Ideas, our news magazine. Bloomington primary and secondary school students have taken inspiration from a variety of black leaders in the nation's history. They range from well-known civil rights leaders, entertainers with important voices, to black entrepreneurs who built business empires. Today, WGLT begins to air the voices of the students who have won awards in the City of Bloomington's Black History Essay Contest. Today, you'll hear from nine-and-a-half-year-old Kelsey Cocotech. Cocotech is from Washington Elementary School and is the first place winner of the elementary school category in the contest.
2: Marley Diaz challenged the status quo in our society by creating a campaign called 1,000 Black Girl Books. She decided to do this campaign because she noticed there was a problem. There were not a lot of books with. Main black character, but she wanted more books with a black girl main character to connect with. So she decided to make a campaign called 1,000 Black Girl Books. She wanted to get 1,000 books that had a black girl main character, but she ended up getting more than 13,000 books, and they are still coming in today. With the books, she wanted to donate them to Jamaica's library and schools. She wanted to donate them to Jamaica because that's where her mom was born. She was successful by getting to meet Michelle Obama and Hillary Clinton. She's also the youngest person to be put on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list. Marley Diaz even hosted her own Netflix series called Bookmarks. Marley even wrote wrote her own book called Marley Diaz Gets It Done, and So Can You. Marley Diaz inspired me to show me that you can make a change when you notice there's a problem. Her making a change influenced me by showing that even though people are young, they can stand up for things like Marley Diaz did. Her being a kid and standing up for something makes me want to be like her and stand up for something at a young age. Having known that she wanted black girl books made me want to learn more about black people and other cultures. I can do that by reading books with different protagonists. Marley Dies inspired me to start a little business with my friends, and we are called the Dream Team. I made up the Dream Team to donate to St. Jude Hospital. To make money for St. Jude, we are going to do jobs for neighbors, like watering plants or walking a dog. Marley Diaz is awesome. She helped me notice that even when you're young, you can make such a big change in any community.
0: That's Kelsey Cocotech, one of the winners of the City of Bloomington's Black History Essay Contest. The reading of Cocotech's speech was produced by WGLT's Charlie Schlenker. And that's Sound Ideas today. WGLT's news magazine is made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. I'm John Norton. Story help today from WGLT's Lindsay Jones, Lauren Warnicky, and Charlie Schlinker. The show was produced by Samantha Hill. You can find all of our Sound Ideas interviews and stories at WGLT.org. And you can subscribe to Sound Ideas on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, or the NPR app. And we'd love to know what you think of Sound Ideas. Comment on our Facebook page. We're FM. At WGLT News is our handle on Instagram. This is 891 WGLT and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network.